Support for the show comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes, buy all the stocks in a theme as is, or customize to better fit your investing goals, all in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Can suffering be meaningful? I'm Sean Ailing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. In the summer of 2020, Seagal Samuel and I hosted a series for the Future Perfect podcast called The Way Through. We took turns talking to spiritual leaders and philosophers, hoping to put our questions in a larger context and find something meaningful in the god-awful experience that was 2020. As the pandemic ground our lives as we knew them to a halt, as the murder of George Floyd sent thousands into the street, And as the pain, anger, and confusion we had been surrounded by for so long in America reached a boiling point, I wanted to talk to Rabbi David Wolpe. Wolpe is the senior rabbi at Sinai Temple in Los Angeles and the author of many, many books on a wide range of topics. One of those books is called Making Loss Matter, Creating Meaning in Difficult Times. I reached out to Wolpe in part because I think it's a natural impulse to turn away from suffering or to look for ways to rationalize it. In this conversation, we lean into it. This is an attempt to dig into the theology of suffering and ask how it can point us in a more fruitful direction. I found this conversation cathartic at the time, and it went in some directions I didn't anticipate. It's a conversation from last summer, but the themes we touched, suffering, meaning, The role of God in religion and everyday life are timeless. So here's my conversation with Rabbi David Wolpe. Rabbi David Wolpe, welcome to the show. Thank you. You know, I should say at the top that, you know, I'm not a believer, but like you, uh, as you discuss in your book, I kind of went through my own militant atheism phase when I was a little younger, and I guess I'm what you would now call an agnostic, but I have come a little later in life to appreciate the the richness and the complexity of religion, or at least to see it as a hell of a lot more than just a bundle of claims about what's true in the world. And so in this conversation, I may strike a skeptical or inquisitive tone, but it is not at all hostile. And I'm, and I'm very delighted to, to engage with you and, and engage with your tradition. Well, thank you. And I, I will say in response to that, I did a bunch of public debates. A lot of them are available on YouTube and so on with Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris um, and others. Uh, and I generally found that the real dividing point wasn't so much that intellectual claims were denied or affirmed. It was what you said that I tried to keep making the argument that religion was so much broader and deeper than their conception of, but you say there's this man in the sky. Um, And I think that that's really, for a lot of people, 
their religion is less about truth claims than it is about the way they they live and they try to get meaning and depth and purpose and community out of their lives. Well, that's partly why you know I wanted to talk to you because obviously this is a very difficult time. What do you think is happening in our society right now? I mean, obviously there's the the the, the pain and the unrest and the sickness and all of that, but beneath all of that, what is it that you see happening right now? So I think that the the spiritual malaise of the society, the the sense of the meaningless at the core is partly a result of the fact that our tools, which make us so much more efficient, also serve to, in some sense, isolate us from one another. Then the pandemic came along and exacerbated that isolation. And people ask deep questions about what is this about and what is this for and how can life just change on a dime and how am I supposed to live in the absence of all the things that I used to take for granted and care about. And in other words, we have been suddenly plunged into an existential crisis and we're not a society in general that turns to deep questions of life meaning. Um, We're a society more of doing things and achieving things and less reflective. And this has forced us back to be reflective. And I think that's an uncomfortable position for a lot of people. And also, we're in the most, you know, Dr. Seuss hit it right. Um, That wise children's book author who was also a philosopher when he said the worst place is the waiting place. We're in this place where we don't know what's going to happen. We're planning to do services online for the foreseeable future because we don't know when we'll be able to gather together again. It could be in months. It could be in years. We can't tell. And that's very difficult to to deal with. I, I tell people often, one of the things that people frequently come to rabbis for, of course, is sickness. And I had uh, a couple of different illnesses. I've had a brain tumor and I've had lymphoma and I've had chemotherapy and surgeries. And one of the things that I learned paradoxically is the most difficult time is not when you've been told what you have. It's the time between when they see something on the test and they don't know what it is until you get the diagnosis. That is, it is the uncertainty that is even more difficult. And right now, our society is in a period of deep uncertainty. And and when you're uncertain, you tend to grasp after certainties. And I think that makes the polarization even worse. The right and left are both grasping after certainties when, in fact, we are in this together and no one knows. Well, we're obviously facing a lot of different crises at the same time. Some of them are political some of them are cultural, some of them are economic. We have a public health emergency, all of that. And you just called it an ex- existential crisis, and it, it may have been in one of the sermons you sent me. You, you also said that we're facing a spiritual crisis or a spiritual test. Yeah. So I'd love to know what you what you mean 
by that? What are we being forced to reflect upon in a way we're not normally forced? When someone suffers a sudden loss, they invariably wonder, like, what is the purpose of life? And why, why is it that I didn't realize how ephemeral everything is yesterday? And I think that that's what, as a society, we're going through. How is it that it is possible for somebody to bite a bat in Wuhan and the world closes down? And that, it, it, it's, it's not just that it's hard to understand, it is impossible to understand. It's far beyond our poor ability to process. And so the deepest questions of what is this all about and how is it that someone can lead a perfectly decent and upright life and be struck by this bizarre disease, which is like veering off the highway of life in such a radical way, how is that possible to cope with? And how do we go on and make meaning in a world in which meaning can be so immediately and, and devastatingly derailed. I think that's the spiritual crisis. And, and it's not a new crisis, but it is a new crisis on a worldwide scale because this is the first time, not maybe that the entire world was going through something, but that the entire world knew that the entire world was going through something. It's the first time that somebody in Los Angeles knows that somebody in Sao Paulo is going through the same thing that I am. There's a quote from your book I'd like to read to you. You wrote, unless we see ourselves as spiritual beings, we shall never truly advance in our understanding of humanity. In times of grief, we need to deal with the unreasonable and only traditions that speak directly to the human soul will guide us through. I'd love to know what you meant by that. We need to see ourselves as more than just stuff, that we have to realize that there is, in addition to all the physical needs of human beings, there, there is a deep hunger in people to believe that they are attached to something greater than themselves. Um, William James, the philosopher, said, the great use of life is to spend it on something that outlasts it. And I think for all of us, we understand that to be fully realized, both as individuals and as a society, we have to think beyond ourselves. And that is a spiritual decision. It's not a political or social or, um, or physical decision. It's something that you have to place faith in. The simplest premises of life, like why should I get up in the morning? or is love meaningful, those aren't things that you can chart or prove. They're sort of the spiritual basis by which we have to live our lives. This is something I admittedly struggle a little bit with, right? So what you're describing are kind of deep metaphysical spiritual needs. And my instinct in a moment like this is to look at what's happening through a kind of social scientific lens. You know, I look at the concrete structures that make up our society and identify that as the root of the problem. But if we are to take your quote seriously, and I want to, 
I'll ask you here, you know, what is the unreasonable part of these problems that we have to deal with? And, and how can we, to use your words, speak to the human soul right now in this moment in a way that will dissolve the boundaries that are separating us? Um, so I, I actually, I think maybe the end of your question helps me speak to the beginning of it in the following way, because if you see it through social or political lenses, then the divisions are unbridgeable. I, in my own congregation, I have a very politically divided congregation. I have people on the right and people on the left, and I mean the right <laughs> and the left. And one thing that has impressed me over the past many years is that there is no argument and no means of persuasion that either side will accept from the other side. Every time someone sends me an article and says, oh, this is a clincher, I see that they believe that one argument or another will prove that their point of view is correct. But what does unite them is at a funeral when someone they both know dies or when they're all singing together in prayer, and then you don't know who's a Republican or who's a Democrat, or when someone has a joy or a tragedy in their family. And that's because the deepest levels of ourselves are not political selves and not social selves. They're spiritual selves. And when you touch that, this is why religion has the potential to be a tremendous uniter. It's kind of force multiplier. It can be a divider too, but it can be a tremendous uniter when people of very different social or political orientations realize that at bottom, they're the same. That's hard to get to outside of, you know, a baseball game or a synagogue. I think most of us are suffering right now and experiencing loss right now in different ways and at different levels. And the book you wrote a few years back called Making Loss Matter is very much about how to face these moments in a way that isn't, you know, resignation or passive, but tries to find a way to turn it into something constructive and positive and useful for the community, for the individual, for everyone. What does it mean to make loss matter? What do you mean? So this was... The book was a product of two separate things that I think will help explain this that really I've carried with me for my life. One is a sermon that my father once gave at a memorial service, what's called a Yisker service. And he said, you know, we have memorials for people who died, but what about the memorials for things that die while we're still alive, for dreams that die, for friendships that die? Because we life is in part a process of losing. I recommend to your listeners the wonderful poem by Elizabeth Bishop, The Art of Losing. The art of losing, she says, isn't hard to master. And then she goes through all the ways we lose in the world. And that was one thing that got me thinking about the different kinds of losses we have. And then the other, the other experience was how often when someone has a loss in their life, they will come to the rabbi and say, why me? And I realized two things about that question. The first is 
people rarely come to me and say, you know, I grew up in the richest country in the world and I had parents who loved me. Why me? Right. People don't ask that question about their blessings. They only ask that question about their losses. But when they ask it, I also realize there's no adequate answer to that question. I mean, theologians have discussed it for thousands of years. I have answers. They have answers. But none of them are completely adequate. Because the real answer to loss is not why did I lose, but what do I do with the fact that I lost? How do I make the loss meaningful so it's not just a loss? So, for example, the, the woman whose name, unfortunately, I can't remember at the moment, who lost her child to a drunk driver and started Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. Now, in a moment, I am sure if you asked her, she would give up all the work and all the organization and everything else if she could have her child back. It's not that it makes it worth it, but she was able to make the loss more than only a loss. It was a loss that created goodness in the world. And my sort of mantra is you're, you're going to lose. Everyone is going to lose. The question is, what do you do with the loss that you experience? How, how do you, I mean, some people can start organizations or charities, but other people can allow their losses to make them more empathetic, more open, more kind, more giving, all those things. Or they can allow their losses to make them harder and colder and more distant. And the book is an attempt to give people ways to make their losses help the world and themselves flourish. I can't speak for anyone else but myself. I haven't experienced any great losses, but I am angry. I am angry that people are dying needlessly. I am, I am angry that the least among us are, are, are bearing the greatest burden as they always do. I'm angry that so many seem so content with so much malice and so much incompetence. And I guess ultimately I'm angry because I feel so small and the problems feel so big. And that fills me with a sense of powerlessness. And I'm not sure what to do with that. Uh, in terms of turning that into something that is constructive and not just, you know, a cause for inertia. So I, I write a weekly column that uh, has been for all, close to 30 years in the New York Jewish Week and uh, that I send out online. And the column is 200 words or less uh, every week. And just last week, it was called Against Anger. And what I said essentially is, Feeling anger is inevitable and sometimes important. Acting out of anger is the trap. Because when we act out of anger, we don't act most of the time. We don't act the way we should and could to make things better. And I actually think that while I share a lot of the anger that you just expressed, um, and think, by the way, that that it is almost inevitable in such a catastrophe because people are going to handle it badly or handle it wrong or be egocentric when they should be giving or 
all of that, uh, and I think we've seen egregious examples in our country, um, but also elsewhere in the world, you're doing exactly what you can. No single person can reverse the tide, but they can add their voice. They can give aid and comfort to people who are doing good things, because even as that is happening, we also know that there are doctors and other healthcare workers and scientists who are working round the clock and helping them and giving them support and giving, I mean, distributing as, as my synagogue and all the other synagogues, churches, so on are doing, distributing food to those who are hungry, helping with employment, helping with money, all of that. That's what we can do. We can't, you and I, legislate different policies um, because we believe they would be helpful. Uh, but we can do certain things that matter. We can find out which charities are the most effective and give to them. We can man soup kitchens. Uh, we can express our solidarity with people who are suffering. Look at the, on the side of my um, synagogue. We put up a very simple banner. We've never put up a banner before, except, you know, school is opening in September. But we put up a very simple banner that said, we stand with our African-American brothers and sisters against racism. And we didn't put it up there because we thought it would change the world. But because we thought, and the emails and letters I've received since demonstrate, that people want to feel not alone. And if you say to them, you're not alone, I at least am hearing you. I'm not in your position, but I hear you. That's more than you might think it is, Sean. That's a tremendous gift to people who don't know if anyone's listening. There's a, a quote in your book from a rabbi whose name I don't recall, but he said something like, or he called despair the greatest sin because yes. it's the death of hope and I guess you know, the acceptance of this belief that, you know, God's world is, is kind of dark and, and cold and, and, and pointless. Do you think that's right? Do you think that's the greatest sin? That was Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav. Um, and he was, a, he was a great and a fascinating character. Uh, I'm all for momentary despair. I'm all against permanent despair. Uh, that is, if you want to lay down in a moment and say, oh my God, I can't take it anymore. I, I'm with you, totally understand. And I think that that uh, there are a lot of people in our society who have every right to feel that. But you have to get up again. You have to. That's the difference between, you know, a, a successful life and world and an unsuccessful one. You have to build the world anew every single day. Even though it's hard and even though you don't want to, that's our task as long as we have breath in our, in our body. And so I think that he's right, that in some sense, the greatest sin against life is permanent despair. Um, but I understand why people feel hopeless for a moment. However, I also, I want to say, you know, there has been tremendous progress in our world in so many ways that part of our despair is forgetting what life was like 200, 300, 400 years ago. I was just read a, a book about death and the Enlightenment in France 
And the first couple of chapters make you so grateful that no matter how bad your life is in the 21st century, boy, it is not living in Paris in the 1700s, where, first of all, half of all babies were expected to die. And another, I think it's 10 to 20% would die before they were eight. And life was constantly difficult in so many ways. And so we shouldn't think that we haven't progressed. In, in other ways, we haven't. But in so many ways, we have that the trajectory should at least give us some hope that maybe, maybe together we can pull this out and make it better for our children than it was uh, for our parents. And what do you think the role of, of faith is in that? So I'm going to, I'll channel my, my younger militant atheist sure. self for a second and, and put uh, what may be a, an annoying question to you, but, but surely a question in some way or another you've, you've, you've beat back a hundred times before. But what if I were to tell you that there is no God and the world isn't so much dark as indifferent? And if there is going to be any injustice in the world, it will be the work of human hands, not, not God's. And my problem with faith, or at least certain manifestations of faith, I think, is that sometimes it becomes, or it leads to a, a, an acceptance of the way things are. You know, that's God's will. And that's, there's nothing we can do about that. And that there's a, a kind of, quietism in that, that I think can sometimes get in the way of the sort of action we need to move forward. And I, I just wonder what you think about that. Um, I, I agree with virtually everything you said. Um, I was not expecting that... you to say that, <laughs> Rabbi. <laughs> I have a problem with that variety of faith for exactly that reason. I remember once, this may be taking it in a direction that you didn't uh, expect. But I remember once having a, a debate with uh, years ago with Sadhguru, who is an, a well-known Indian guru who came to my congregation. Well, a wonderful man in many ways, a really interesting person, and I've had other dialogues with him since. But we had a long debate about reincarnation because I said, look, reincarnation means that whatever life you're living now, it's because of what you did in the past life. And that means if your life is miserable now, you deserve it because in a past life you lived a certain way. I said, and that, that negates everything that I believe, that this world is essentially unfair and that you have to do what you can to make it fair. And, and I agree with you. I think that our task in this world, and, and I would say our God-given task, is to do everything we can to make the world as good and as fair as we can but also to accept ultimately that there are limitations, not only to what we can do, but to what we can understand. The same people who understand that the human eye can't see all the colors and the human ear can't hear all the frequencies somehow seem to believe that the human brain can understand all the dimensions. The brain was created by evolution just like the eye and the ear. There are a lot, there are infinite aspects to this world that we don't begin to understand. My faith is not about letting God do stuff that I can do. My faith is about trusting that God does stuff that I can't do, that no human being can do. 
and believing that I can live in such a way as to fulfill the purpose for which I was sent to this world. Now, sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. I know that very well. Um, if I, I'll use a biblical reference, since surely I should get at least one biblical reference in uh, as a rabbi. When the Israelites come to the Red Sea, Moses starts crying out to God, and God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Move forward. And I think of that as a sort of motto. If you're praying for something you could do, that's, that's not it. Let me give you a different image of prayer. This is from a, a 17th century rabbi named Leona Medina. He said, if you were standing by the side of a lake and you saw a man pulling a boat to the shore, you might think, if you were mistaken about mechanics in motion, that he was pulling the shore to the boat. But that's not true. He's pulling the boat to the shore. He said, when people pray, they make the same mistake. They think what they're doing is pulling God to their wishes. But when you pray successfully, what you're doing is pulling yourself closer to God. So I don't see prayer as inviting God to do things that I should be doing. I see prayer as motivating me to do things that God wishes me to do. How should we think about unfairness or injustice? You can look at things as a puzzle, which demands an explanation, or you can look at things as a mystery, which demands acceptance and a commitment to setting things right. Which is the better approach? I'll ask David Wolpe after a short break. Support for the show comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes, buy all the stocks in a theme as is, or customize to better fit your investing goals, all in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. It's loud, deafening, cacophonous. It's a nightmare. Oppressive. And just what is it that many people think is pretty nightmarish and yet are still willing to shell out quite a bit of money for a night out at a restaurant? Sound is the number one complaint that diners have about their experience. So why are restaurants so loud, and when did that start happening? Is there anything anyone can do to fix it? We've got the answers on the latest episode of Gastropod. All that, plus the science behind the perfect playlist to accompany your meal. This special episode is part of our new collaboration with the podcast Switched on Pop. Find Gastropod and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I heard you say somewhere, or maybe I read this in your book, I don't recall, but I loved it. You said something like, we have a choice to see the world as a puzzle or a mystery. Yes. And if it's a puzzle, then you know the reality of, 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 of injustice and suffering demands an explanation. But if it's a mystery, then it's beyond our understanding. And the only thing to do is get to work to make it 
better. And I, I think that's right and true and, and, and beautiful. Thank you. And yet, why do you think so many people treat religion as though it is an answer to the puzzle? Because huh. I've often, and this is part of my resistance to the religious perspective, particularly when I was coming up, it was this impulse to have the kind of capital T truth, the final answer, and then be done with it, as opposed to accepting uncertainty. And with that acceptance, also taking on the responsibility of acting in the world, because what the world is, is what we do. So I, I may, this may or may not resonate with you and with your listeners, but it's true that there are some people who are profoundly certain um, of their religious convictions and, and believe that God should take care of everything. In my experience, however, the level of human certainty is pretty steady. And I have met people who are not at all religious, whose political or social or national certainties are as deep and as fixed as any believer I have ever met. No question. And so I think that it's a human characteristic, I almost want to say failing. I mean, it was... It was Keats who wrote that beautiful letter to his brother where he talked about negative capacity, that is the ability to be in uncertainty without constantly searching for a certainty that you can grab hold of and stick fast to, and how hard that was. Well, if it was hard for Keats, it was certainly hard for us um, because it's difficult to live in that waiting place that we talked about earlier, it's difficult to live when you don't know what the answer is, because life life is, as the writer Sheed once wrote, he said, life is fired at you point blank. That is, you might not know what the right answer is, but you have to take an action today, tomorrow, the next day. And so it's very difficult for people to make life commitments without life certainties. And, and once you decide that all of the questions are answered, you can sort of relax. But but I'm I'm with you. I'm I'm on the anti-relaxation party. Uh, I think that we have to keep listening and struggling, and that's one of the reasons why I constantly try to get people of different political sides to listen to each other, because they're settled in their certainties and they just dismiss the convictions of the other side as though they're essentially dishonest or stupid when I, I always believe there must be something in the side that I'm not taking for me to learn from. I think that's one of the things I liked about your book about loss and suffering, where I read it as a refutation of a lot of what I would call uh, pop psychology or pop religion, which is very much about finding comfort or helping us to avoid thinking about right. the reality of loss and the inevitability of loss. And for you, it's much more important, I think, and please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but for you, it's very much about facing these kind of ugly realities and keeping them in our view at all times uh, without and, and avoiding the temptation to kind of rationalize them or explain them away and just simply doing and, and kind of getting beyond the... the Right. The, the kind of analyzing and the thinking. C completely. I really believe, as I think you do, 
that the world is deeply unfair. And, and if you believe that, then you recognize that you have an, I mean, it shouldn't make you feel guilty. I actually don't feel guilty that I was born lucky. And I know I was born very lucky in so many ways, but I feel responsible. I don't think I did anything wrong to be born lucky, but I do think I do something wrong if I don't use that to help other people have some of the luck that I've had. And so you're right. If you, if you find an explanation for everything and you relax, then you're living badly. And I really, uh, I think that, um, you know, I, I, this may be too, uh, too tongue-in-cheek, but I think in some ways it's true. The former president of Israel, the late president of Israel, Shimon Peres, once said that the great gift of the Jews to the world was dissatisfaction. And I actually, I actually think that dissatisfaction is a great gift mm. because in a world of such inequality and cruelty, if you're not dissatisfied, there's there's something wrong. I mean, a part of you should have acceptance and gratitude, but a part of you also has to have indignation. Well, this may be a good moment to earn my gold star from the rabbi by invoking my own biblical example <laughs> that's in your, your book. And I, I jotted this down when I was reading it. I want to make sure I don't, I don't get it wrong, but you have a, you talk about a story uh, about Job I think it speaks not so much to the problem of suffering, but but to how we should help each other when we face it. And so in the book of Job, right, Job's friends initially sit beside him and weep uh, after he, you know, sort of experiences all these personal tragedies that I think most people probably know of. But then when they try to explain it to him, you know, try to explain yeah. why all these terrible, terrible things happen to him. Then they're condemned. What's the lesson there? Like, it seems very relevant to, to what we're, we're talking about. It is great. Yes, that, that was wonderful. And thank you for that. I got my star. Um, nice. <laughs> you got your star. Um, the lesson is that as soon as you explain away someone else's suffering, you're wrong. You're wrong. Because... Um, first of all, you don't, you can't know. You don't know and you can't know. And you can try to make it better, but you can't take away someone else's suffering. And in fact, at the end of the book, in this wonderful, I mean, people don't always realize that this is in the Bible. In this wonderful passage, God says, I'm angry at your friends because they didn't speak the truth about me, as did Job. And what did Job say? Job said, God created this unfair world. And God says, you're, you're right, I did. And so from God's own mouth, as it were, there is this acknowledgement that this place is messed up and that, that God unaided will not fix it and that we have to. So you're right. As soon as you say, ah, well, look, I, I know, you know, this is why this happened to you. Um, you're wrong, but I also, I want to add one other just word of, of understanding of why sometimes people will come to me and say, I know why this happened to me because I did something bad. Um, one of the reasons that we seek explanations is it is easier to feel guilty than to feel helpless. 
Because if you're guilty, you can say, I will change my behavior and this bad thing won't happen to me again in the future. You have some control if you're guilty. But the truth is, as we've discovered over the past several months about many things in the world, not everything, but about many things in the world, we're helpless. The only thing we have in our control is how we react to what happens, but we can't determine what happens. And so it's our own response that we have to focus on. But we don't have to focus on it alone. And I, I love how you define faith in that book about loss. I think you, you call it the, the simple certainty that we're not alone. Yeah. And I love that. I really do feel that. I mean, I never feel completely alone. And in a time of tremendous aloneness, that, that in itself is a comfort. Um, it feels like, and also it never feels like the world is entirely meaningless. And those two things are what are great gifts that faith gives. Um, and, uh, it has its consolations. No question. Another thing I love about your book and bear with me for a second here. It's not really about answers so much as an approach, right? It's an approach for how to face loss and, and transmute it into something meaningful or, or useful. Yeah. What's difficult about this moment is, as you say in the book, when we lose something, a loved one or a memory or a relationship, whatever, people try to fix it for us. And that's a mistake because we can't get back what's already gone. And this situation is no different. We... We, and by we, I mean this country, our society, such as it is, can't undo or give back what's been taken generation after generation from so many people. We can't fix their pain, but we can absolutely do something now to fix it, to fix what's broken. And I worry that the righteous anger on one side and the denial on the other is blocking the way to that solution. And I wonder if that is what worries you the most. Um, oh, it's hard to say what worries me the most, but, but it's certainly, uh, it is dispiriting to see how unable people are to speak to one another. Um, and by the way, to forgive one another. There is an almost righteous vengeance uh, against people who at any time in their life said something wrong or did something wrong um, that, that also blocks our ability to communicate across lines. Because without forgiveness, there is no reconciliation. And without the recognition that all human beings are going to do bad things or say something that was wrong or unintended or or hasty, or even cruel, you have to be able to listen and forgive. And, and we are in a moment um, which starts at the top and moves all the way down through society of such vitriol and such denigration of the people who disagree with you that, yeah, I'm, I don't know how we pull back from that precipice I know that societies can do it. Um, 
I mean, I've been to South Africa and, and uh, for all the problems that that society had, what they, what they managed to do because of Mandela, because there was a Mandela, was astonishing. Um, but, but I don't see our Mandela whom everybody could listen to on the horizon. And so I don't know how we're going to get such angry and oppositional sides to come together at this moment because I, and this may not be the moment, honestly, during the pandemic, when there is this incessant hum of anxiety underneath all of our lives, it it may not be possible for people to have the calm center that's required to reach out. Well, I'm not very optimistic about that either. Um, I wonder what it is you think that we can we can draw from faith and not just your faith, but faith as such, all of the faiths, all of the, the traditions, what we can draw from them in this moment that we can't get anywhere else, that we can't draw from any other source. So I think the two biggest things, the first, by the way, by far the biggest of the big things is that all of the monotheistic faiths, and, and I, there are equivalents in the Eastern religions, but I'm, I don't want to speak for them. Um, but all of the monotheistic faiths speak about human beings being created in the image of God. It's the earliest statement about human beings in the Hebrew Bible, and, and Christianity, obviously, and, and Islam follow suit. If you really believe that, I mean, if you really believe it, that all human beings are created in the image of God, then every person is precious in that way. And that means that that their essential nature as a child of God is deeper than any political, social, racial, ethnic, sexual, any other kind of overlay of that that that's the foundation of what everyone is. And and if people took that more seriously, I think that would help help a lot. Um, And then the second is that the essential religious um, position is that all human beings are a collective and, and in the same boat. And you can see that, obviously, scientifically. Um, we're all on this planet, for example. But, but if you see the real human predicament as the same everywhere, then you can understand that other human beings, even when they seem antagonistic or angry or so on, that there is something deep within them that shares your doubts, your perplexities, your suffering, your worry, your your mortality, um, the fact that, that they will face death as you will. And so that those two statements of commonality, I think, are what, are what religious leaders at their best preach to the people um, who, uh, who all too often want to hear uh, other messages. If this is, as you say, a spiritual test, and I think that begs the question, is our religious 
traditions are our religious leaders meeting the moment is this are the religious institutions we have in this country and, and all the traditions and all the, the resources they have to muster are, are are they responding to that as a community to are they responding to this moment in a way uh, that is is helping us to to move forward and, and, and if not what ought they to be doing from what I have seen and and I grant you there is a great deal that I have not seen but from what I have seen, in one crucial sense, religious institutions have responded very well. And that is, I'm aware of tremendous numbers of charitable projects and outreach and feeding people and helping people who are unemployed from virtually every religious institution that I know of. And, and to have those sort of um, spiritual boots on the ground, if you will, is incredibly important at a time that the need is so great that no government program could possibly, I mean, that's always true, but especially true now, that no government program, however generous, could possibly embrace all the needs um, and also couldn't know all the needs. I mean, I know the needs of the people in my congregation in a way that no one else could. Uh, so in that sense, they're doing well. What What we... What we don't have, what we do miss, are a few powerful national voices that have a sort of universal respect um, that could speak up in a way that people would have to listen to. And, and I think that the reason that that is so is that even political, even religious leaders have become politically classified as right or left, and therefore only their constituents listen to them. Um, we lack an overarching figure uh, or overarching figures. And that I think is a, is a great loss to a society when it doesn't have spokespeople, religious, but even if they weren't religious, who are universally respected, whose voice could summon people to the better angels of their nature. Um, and and I, in that sense, I think uh, the religious world is failing us. You know, I have to admit, I've always struggled to stay hopeful, in part because the fragility of the world means that it, it's always easier to break than to build. And, yeah. you know, every achievement is just kind of waiting to be washed away like a sandcastle by the tide. And it, listening to you now and reading your book, it, it, faith to you seems to be the ability not to be weighed down by fear. Is that right? I never thought of it that way, and I thank you for putting it that way, but I think that that's true. I think that that's what faith is. Faith is not to allow the fear or the loneliness or the despair to be the final word, ever to be the final word. To really believe that um, ultimately our trajectory is in the ascendant, that we will overcome this, that as dark as things look, they will, you know, the, the dawn is coming. Um, 
And when I look back in history, the people that we most admire, um, they're like Rembrandt portraits. They're, they're that, that shining face out of the darkness. Whether you think of King or Lincoln um, or Moses, uh, I think that that's, that's what they were. They took dark, difficult times and they gave people hope. And in the end, they were right. Well, maybe the faith I need now, the faith we all need now, isn't the faith that promises salvation, but the kind of faith that inspires action, or maybe the kind of faith that makes action possible in the first place. And we're approaching the end of this conversation now, but I, I just want to say that I appreciate people like you or people like you know Reverend William Barber, who are, who are focusing on action and focusing on, on constructive steps we can take and spending more time on that and less time on dogma. And, and, and I think, I think that's the right approach. And I think that's what we all need. And uh, I appreciate the work that you do. Thank you. I will. Um, it sounds strange because, uh, it was, uh, he was a Catholic thinker to close with this, but I've always loved the statement by Miguel de Unamuno. He said, may God deny you peace and give you glory. And I think that that's, we need a little less peace and a little more glory in the best sense. So thank you, Sean. Rabbi David Wolpe, thanks so much for being here. This week's episode was originally produced by Jackson Beerfeld as part of The Way Through from Future Perfect. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Jostaska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk Podcast. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode.